0: I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate in the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting, and I'm a best-selling author and the founder of The Right Practice.
1: And I'm Alice Sudlow. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Right Practice and a StoryGrid Certified Editor, and I'm also losing my voice today, so I'm sorry that I sound pretty scratchy.
0: I think you sound fine.
1: I appreciate that vote of confidence that I don't totally believe.
0: So today, as always, we're going to start by putting a character to the test. Alice and I look at a character in a book we're reading or film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from that character? Which character are we talking about today, Alice?
1: We're talking about Inspector Armand Gamache from the Inspector Gamache series by Louise Penny.
0: After that, we're talking to New York Times bestselling author J.F. Penn, also known as Joanna Penn, Joanna is best known for her supernatural thriller novels, including the Arcane series, the latest of which, Valley of Dry Bones, we're going to be talking about a lot today. She describes the series as the Da Vinci Code meets Tomb Raider, and her novels are a lot of fun, but there's also always something deeper. Going on in her stories. Joanna is also a leader in the indie publishing movement. She teaches writing and publishing on her website and podcast, The Creative Pen. In this interview, we'll get into how Joanna got the confidence to leave her corporate job to become a writer, how travel inspires her writing, and her views on life and death. The last part of our show is our character study, where we ask what we can learn in our own lives as we try to live a better story. Thanks for listening to The Character Test Show. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though, so you'll have to find out for yourself. You can get it at charactertestshow.com slash episode 12. Again, go to charactertestshow.com slash episode 12 to get a free prize Related to this episode. All right, Alice, it's time for the character test portion of our show. Today we're examining Inspector Armand Gamache from the Inspector Gamache series.
1: I've never read this series, so could you give us a brief synopsis? Who is Inspector Gamache?
0: So, as you probably can guess, this is a murder mystery series. Armand Gamache is the chief inspector of the homicide division of the Montreal Surete, which is the police force in French Canada. In the first novel, Still Life, Gamache is investigating the death of an elderly woman who was killed in a small village called Three Pines, just north of the American border. It's a typical murder mystery in many ways, but what makes it really special is that Louise Penny is one of the best at getting into a character's head and describing their personality and worldview as any writer in the world. She didn't publish this novel until she was in her 40s, and it just drips with maturity and wisdom and understanding, and Gamache himself is like the father figure we all wish wish we had, but don't deserve. He's strong, compassionate, cultured. He's a good dresser. He likes good food. But most of all, he inspires a love and loyalty that's really admirable.
1: So why did you choose to test Inspector Gamache?
0: So I read Still Life in a day. And by the end of the week, I had finished three books in the series. So it really got to me. But there's this one scene that first captured me. It was early in the novel, Gamash is talking to a young agent who he's kind of taking under his wing. And it struck me because it shows off everything there is to love about Gamash: his confident humility, his compassion, how good he is at his work. I know he's not a real person, but I find myself just wanting to sit at his feet and learn from him the whole time.
1: Wow, that sounds like an awesome and impactful character. So let's put him to the test. We've got our four criteria for what makes an interesting character. We'll we'll start with his goal. Does Inspector Gamache have a goal, and what is that goal?
0: Yeah, I think like most crime mystery novels, his goal is to solve the murder. That's kind of a built-in goal to the genre. But for Inspector Gamache, his goal is also to build his team. A lot of the people on his team are broken people in different ways, He takes in the rejects, really, and he makes them into these brilliant agents. So his goal is to teach them, to counsel them, and really to help them become whole people.
1: It's really awesome. That adds an extra layer to the solve the mystery goal of the novel. Yeah. So does he have to overcome challenges to accomplish that goal? And what are some of those challenges?
0: There are the usual mystery novel challenges, finding clues, dealing with unruly suspects, the usual red herring. And Louise Penny does a great job building tension into the crime genre. But Gamache also deals with the challenges among his team. His new recruit has a really bad attitude. She nearly ruins the case. And there's this question kind of lingering, is he going to be able to break through with her? Is he going to be able to actually help her to change? And for me, that was the most compelling question I had in the story.
1: It's really cool. It sounds like it's the kind of book that would appeal to readers who are looking for a straight mystery story and also readers who are looking for a bit of internal character development as well. Definitely. So good characters make decisions. Does Inspector Gamache make decisions and can you point to one of them?
0: So this is the question I had the biggest challenge with. Gamache values listening, taking in information before he takes action. And much of the novel is other characters making decisions, but he does make several very important decisions. His decision to take on this troublesome agent that I talked about and try to train her is one of them. And he also makes some of the big decisions towards the end of the novel in finding the murderer.
1: Awesome. It sounds too like when you talk about other characters making decisions, much of his role is to empower other characters to make those decisions. Is that? True. Yeah,
0: I mean, except for like, it's a mini plot, you know, there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. characters who play central roles in the story. So we get to know the whole village, which is really fun, and get inside this Canadian village in Quebec. So the world building aspect of it is so fun. And other characters are making decisions as well. There are other great characters that you can kind of fall in love with. For Gamash, his role is kind of to orchestrate the whole thing. And he does that really well.
1: Awesome. Is he a character that we can empathize with?
0: Yeah, I definitely think we can empathize with his compassion, his love for his teammates. I think we can empathize with the way he seeks to understand everyone, even his suspects. He has a lot of empathy himself. And I think we can learn from that empathy and empathize with it.
1: Nice. It sounds like he's a character that we would not just like because he has qualities that we like, but also like because he's an interesting character and interesting to read about. I definitely have
0: a man crush
1: on <laughs> Inspector
0: Gamash. I just want to like hang out with him all the time.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Man, I wish that our fictional heroes could be real people we could actually hang out with. Sometimes. Sometimes. At least
0: the heroes. Maybe right. not the... The villains.
1: Right. Last thing, what can we learn from Gamash?
0: So, after reading these novels, I find myself asking, what would Inspector Gamash do in this situation? I think about that all the time. Most of us try to be good, kind people. But what Inspector Gamash does is he does that while also being strong. He knows himself, he kind of forces others to respect his boundaries. But he does that while also protecting and caring for them. I think being strong while also being compassionate is really difficult, It's hard to find that balance. So I think we can learn how to find that balance from Inspector Gamache.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Well, that's everything for Inspector Gamache. It sounds like he passes the test.
0: He passes.
1: Excellent, there we go. Let's get into our interview with Joanna.
0: Well, welcome to the Character Test Show, Joanna. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me on the show.
0: So I'd like to start with a section from your latest novel in your arcane series, Valley of Dry Bones. And you've said your arcane series is kind of like Da Vinci Code meets Tomb Raider, which is really fun. And in this novel, there are two heroes who are tracking down a relic said to bring the dead back to life. Can you read that section from your novel?
2: Yeah, sure. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so this is from Valley of Dry Bones. They entered the door into the cathedral, walking into chilly darkness as they stepped over the threshold. It was freezing. And as Morgan looked up to the arch ceiling high above, she could see why. The cathedral was massive, an enormous space. It was the very definition of the Gothic style. Built in the 13th century and extended in the 15th on the foundations of the Visigoth Basilica. Stone pillars towered above, meeting in soaring arches. Stained glass windows let in a little light, but as the rain poured down outside, it sent the cathedral further into shadow. Morgan shivered. In some places of faith, she felt warmth and welcome, but here she felt only numbing cold.
0: Thank you. Well, travel is an important part of this book and all your books. This novel takes place in New Orleans, San Francisco, and Toledo, Spain. And I heard that you visited all of those places when you were working on this book. How does it feel to write like this about your travel experiences?
2: Oh, well, it's funny because I do travel to most of the places in my books and you picked a passage from Toledo. So this is about the cathedral in Toledo and it really was freezing. <laughs> I mean, it was so cold and I went because I was in New Orleans and I saw a Bible in the St. Louis, but for French, the St. Louis Cathedral, they have the St. Louis Bible at the back of the church. And, you know, I was doing all this research around New Orleans and when I saw this Bible, it was basically a copy of the Toledo Bible. And that made me want to visit Toledo. I was like, there is a story here. I don't understand what is going on. So that led me into this story. So for my Arcane series, it really is, I find the story as I travel. And this one turned into something around the Spanish Empire and sort of all the places that Spain had started off with and then moved into. Obviously, San Francisco, where the book is also set, has the missions. And the friar who started those missions was born in Mallorca. And I actually visited where he studied and where he was born. So. I love to travel. And it's so funny because, you know, when I looked at my life back in my early 30s, I said to myself, what do I want to do with my life? And it was reading, writing and traveling. (laughs) And so that's kind of why I designed my books this way. But yes, in fact, as we speak, I'm off to Lisbon, Portugal next week because my next arcane thriller will be around the Portuguese Jews and where they ended up. So yeah, Uh I always travel for my research.
0: So how did your visits inspire this book? And what order did you visit each of those places? You said you went to San Francisco and New Orleans and Toledo and Mallorca. I'm assuming you didn't like fly from each spot. You know, how (laughs) did that kind of come about?
2: Well, there's a reason I only write one arcane book every year, pretty much a year to 18 months. And it is because, and I write other books in the meantime, but obviously, I, as you say, I don't travel everywhere at once. Sometimes the ideas are from other trips. So for example, Destroyer of Worlds, which is set in India, I first traveled to India sort of 15 years ago, and then I traveled back 10 years later, and both of those trips found their way into the book. So often many of the stories might be travels that I've done over, um, or End of Days, for example, was set a lot in Israel, and I traveled a lot in Israel back in the 90s. So many of them are based on other places and things that almost appear as a story later on. And then, yeah, occasionally I will visit a place later on as well. So with this one, <laughs> It's hard to to say. I mean, the Valley of Dry Bones, I've always loved the story in the biblical book of Ezekiel of of the Valley of Dry Bones, which is come breath and breathe into these bones and they rise up, this army of the dead. So it's, it's like a zombie story in the Bible. And I was always fascinated by that. So I think when I went to San Francisco a number of years ago and found the missions, I went to Mission Dolores in the Mission District. And I was like, this is a very interesting place. And relics have always interested me anyway. Then when I was in New Orleans, it was probably a year later, that's when I saw the Bible. And then we were doing a trip to Madrid anyway. And Toledo is only like an hour outside Madrid. So that's why I went to Toledo for this book. But it kind of acts twofold. Whenever I travel to a place, I will go and see historical places and cathedrals and synagogues and i'll look at the history the generally the religious history of a place and i will look at what are the stories beneath this place. And of course, the Portuguese empire was incredibly powerful in Latin America. You know, a lot of Latin America speaks Portuguese because of how far they got. And they went to Goa, they went to Istanbul. So this is why this next story is sort of turning into an international thriller. So it's a bit of both. I either know I want to research a place so I go there or I'm in a place and I research it.
0: That's so interesting that you're drawn to the religious stories of a place. You know, I've traveled pretty extensively, but I'm usually more focused on people that you meet and what food there is. But you're really focused on the religious narratives in those communities. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating.
2: Yeah. I think, well, I have a master's degree in theology from Oxford, and I've always been interested in the psychology of religion. So I'm not of any religion myself, but I have an incredible curiosity. I would say I'm spiritual in that I believe there is more than what we can see. I guess if you believe in Wi-Fi, (laughs) you believe in more than we can see. But you know that I, I write about the arcane books, they have a supernatural edge is what I say. They're not paranormal. There's no werewolves or whatever, but certainly Valley of Dry Bones, is there something that can raise the dead? Well, you know, if you look at Haitian voodoo, so when I went to New Orleans, I researched a lot about voodoo. And of course that comes from West Africa. So even though I didn't visit West Africa, I wrote about the history of of Spain in West Africa and some of the things they might have found within Mm. that tradition. So I find all different faith's very interesting and of course the history of the world is the history of religion it's it's entwined in every place and i'm very grateful to live in europe because we have so much of that history here whereas you know in the in the usa you know you have uh, obviously you, some a- more ancient religions but every place you go in europe there are just so many i mean here That's i true. live in in Bath in the southwest of England, it was a Roman spa over 2000 years ago. And we have the medieval abbey built on top of an ancient Roman bath full of curses to the gods. So it's, it's kind of an incredible place to live.
0: Wow. So at this point in your career, do you write to travel or do you travel to write? Like, are you more excited about the travel and going to these places and now you have an excuse to write about it or is it like now you have an excuse to travel about it because you're writing a story about that
2: it's definitely both. So for example, earlier in the year my husband was like he, you know he said I'd like to go to Amsterdam and I've been to Amsterdam a long long time ago in the Netherlands and I was like well that would be great let's go to Amsterdam and then I started researching well what is interesting about Amsterdam and and what is special about it obviously great canal network and you know interesting political things but also I discovered there the Portuguese synagogue. Now we didn't go to Amsterdam looking for the Portuguese synagogue. We also went you know, to look at the Rembrandts, the Night Watch, and I looked at it, and I, I just get this feeling. So I looked at the Night Watch, which is one of the most famous paintings, and just went, uh, does nothing for me. <laughs> Whereas then we went to this Portuguese synagogue, and it was Incredible, they don't have electricity. So when they light it with candles, they have over a thousand candles, and it was just beautiful. And then you read about the history of the place, and I was like, How come the Portuguese Jews were here? And also, they have one of the oldest libraries in the world. And I'm a sucker for libraries and old manuscripts, and you know, the sort of the arcane, as I as I say, you know, those secret things that have been kept for generations. And I looked in the window of this library, and they don't let you. In, I mean, you have to get special permission and stuff. And I was like, oh, I really want to go in there. And for me, the next best thing to going in there is going to be writing about it. Because, of course, I can find pictures and I can make up manuscripts, which is what I love to do. And that has now led to the trip to Lisbon because obviously I can just read about the fact that the Portuguese expelled the Jews. But when I go to a place, it brings it alive for me. So the passage I read about the Toledo Cathedral. I love places of faith. I love cathedrals. I go in them a lot. So to compare Toledo with Mallorca, Palma in Mallorca, two very, very big cathedrals with very high ceilings built of that sort of Gothic era. And Palma was just amazing. I just felt happy. I felt buoyant. I mean, obviously, it's a warmer climate. But Toledo, it was really quite nasty. I felt Coals in every sense of the word. And Toledo was where they had massive pogroms against the Jews. The Jewish population there was pretty much wiped out and expelled. They have a little synagogue area, a little Jewish district, but it was so fascinating to compare the two. So yeah, I just, I get so involved in the place when I travel there that it's worth it to me. So this is a job, but you can also tell this is a passion.
0: I love it. So as you mentioned earlier, before you started writing full time, you were working a corporate job. How did you make the career change from a corporate job to a career in writing?
2: Well, I think the biggest shift is making the decision because, you know, I was a a quite highly paid consultant. I was implementing accounts payable systems (laughs) into a mining company at the time. Sounds amazing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was was a very well paid job, but it was not creative, as you can imagine. And I was, you know, I had the money, but it was those golden handcuffs. I was like, how do I give this up? We had a house, we had an investment property, we had all the stuff that goes in the house. But I was crying every day at work, I was just miserable. And my husband said, look, you you have to figure out what you want to do with your life, and then we'll make it happen. So I started listening to a lot of back then podcasts or downloadable, audio as I guess they were, and and audio books sent off for tapes, I think it was, or CDs, and started to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And in that process, decided to write a book about career change. So this was around 2006.
0: So you were writing a book about career change as you are making a career change?
2: Well, it was more that I wanted to figure out how to change my own life. And I think everyone has a natural way of expression. And my natural way of expression is writing. And I felt that if I Tried to write a book about it, I would learn what I needed to learn. And I continue to do this. All my nonfiction books are written because I needed to learn something. <laughs> so I tend to, you know, teach what you need to learn it is a good thing. So Yeah, that's but, what
0: I do too. So I, I mean, yeah. it makes total sense to me.
2: Yeah, exactly. So by the time I'd written this book and I then discovered the publishing industry and how much time it would take, and I decided to self publish before the Kindle, before any of the stuff we have nowadays in sort of 2007. But what also happened was I made this mindset shift around my day job, which was, this is now a day job. I will do what I have to do to keep my job but no more. So I would leave on time, which as all, most of us know in the, in corporates, you don't leave on time. You work more than the hours you're meant to work. And I didn't want promotion. I didn't want any extra work. I just wanted to do my job and go home. So I would get up early at like 5am and write and come home and do marketing. I started my podcast in 2009. I started a YouTube channel. I started my blog. You know, I, So I was building and writing while I had the day job. So it took me to 2011. So it was about five years of of doing all that before I could go full time. And I was only able to do that because we downsized. So we sold everything because I was at the time, pretty much the prime wage earner. So we sold everything, downsized, got rid of debt so that I could shift. And then it took a couple of years before my income came back up again. And in 2015, my husband left his job to join the company. So I want to encourage people, you know, if you want to do this full time, you can. But it's certainly for me, it was like five years of building up income from the business, multiple streams of income. You don't just do this with one book. And then also another couple of years before the income comes back up again. Yeah. So and now I guess as we talk in 2019, I've been doing this 13 years in total. So that makes me about the level I was when I left consulting in terms wow. of experience now.
0: I mean, it sounds very courageous to make that kind of jump from a corporate level job and into creative work where you had to take a pay cut to do that, but also kind of a courageous thing slowly over time. Like, did it feel courageous at points in that process?
2: I think because it was so slow for me, you know, over the five years, I didn't make the decision to leave my job when I decided to change my life. It will happen slowly. I'm not someone who likes risk. So, and also when I left my job, we had six months of money to pay the bills and everything. My husband had a job. So it really was a case of, I said, look, if this doesn't work, I will go back. And I've never had to go back, which is fantastic. But I don't think of myself as courageous in any way. I I think generally it's if the pain is great enough, you will do anything to fix that pain. And I just was so miserable. I just could not do that job any longer I was creatively dying every day I had no ideas I didn't think of myself as creative which is crazy now (laughs) my business is the creative pen (laughs) but you know I didn't equate the word pen my actual surname with writing you know I was born for this and yet I didn't know it so I had been put in this corporate box for years and years and it took a lot of self-analysis and self-help work to change my mindset and then obviously it's not just mindset you have to take action and I started writing the books and more books and all of that so yeah I would encourage people to think that you don't well do not just quit your job tomorrow and expect to create a full-time living with your writing I think take it slowly and you absolutely can do this
0: Yeah. And I heard you discovered that you were, in fact, creative, in part through taking action. You entered NaNoWriMo. You didn't win, but you wrote a lot of words. Could you tell us that story about kind of discovering that you were creative through writing a novel?
2: yeah sure so well I think the discovering I was creative it started a few years before that when I, I had an affirmation which was I am creative I am an author and I started saying that around yeah 2006 I am creative I am an author and I couldn't say it out, out loud at first and if you're listening you know if someone's listening and try saying this out loud I am creative I am an author and I used to say that before I was either of those things <laughs> but then when when you have an affirmation like that you start to move into taking action on that, you can change things and what is in your mind can become real. So it's a bit, you know, the secret law of attraction, but it's the action side that is important. So if you want to be an author, you have to write. So I started doing that. So I wrote a couple of nonfiction books. And then in, in 2009, I had someone on my podcast and we were talking and I said, oh, I could never write a novel. And he said, sounds like you've got a block about that. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm not someone who has writer's block. I don't, you know, no, that's crazy. And then I came off the phone and went, okay, that is interesting. That's very much challenged my self-definition. So how could I be a fiction writer? And so I did NanoRIMO National Novel Writing Month. People can find that at nanorimo.org, and I wrote twenty thousand words in that month. And the aim is to write fifty thousand, but it didn't matter. <laughs> That's the first twenty thousand words I'd ever written for fiction since school, and so that turned into sort of five thousand words that became the first arcane novel, Stone of Fire. And it took about fourteen months after that for me to. Write it, edit it. I did Year of the Novel at a library in Queensland, Australia. I was living in Australia at the time, and yeah, that first novel came out, and it, it completely shook up my definition of myself. And since then, what have I written? Like seventeen novels now. But but what's funny, and if people are novelists, they'll they understand this. As soon as I finished a novel, I wonder if I can ever do it again. <laughs> And then so I take a rest. So the last book I put out, Map of Plagues, came out a couple of months ago as we talk. And I'm only just now coming up to the point of, oh, okay, yeah, I'm about ready to do this again. So we're <laughs> out ready. The, the ideas are coming back.
0: <laughs> I totally relate to that. I finished a novel and I'd, I've written creatively for so long and had a similar mental block around writing fiction. It was such a big deal to me, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. I really wanted to be, I've always wanted to be a novelist. And it had built up into this huge thing. And I just decided I was going to finish, like it was time. I needed to stop planning to do this and just do it. So I wrote this novel about a pretty basic idea. Well, not so basic, but it wasn't this grand series that I was planning and it went pretty well. And I really love the story and I'm going to release it next year. But yeah, I have the same kind of, am I actually a novelist? Like I wrote a novel, but what does that make me? Can I do this again? Can it be better even than the last time? There's so much self-doubt just even after accomplishing that, it's still... Stressful.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I definitely have Dan Brown to thank for my fiction career because before, you know, I I went to Oxford, my mum taught literature. I really, the my block was to be a novelist, you have to write prize winning literary fiction. And that was what stopped me for so long. It was, well, I can't write a prize winning literary novel. And then The Da Vinci Code came out and I was like, "This, I love this. This is great. This is exactly the type of thing I want to write. And before that, my favorite book had been The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. And again, very literary writer. So that kind of Religious thriller. And then, of course, you know, the Da Vinci Code got banned by the Vatican (laughs) and it it turned into what it did. And it kind of showed me that you can write a religious thriller without it being a Christian novel. I mean, it definitely fits within the genres or between genres. But this would be my message to people write what you love to read. Don't think that you have to write a certain thing because that's the thing that people say you should write. (laughs) I mean, really focus on what you love and what you love to read. And that's going to be the best type of book you're going to write.
0: So I've heard you say that you once wanted to be kind of a Tony Robbins figure, like a motivational writer kind of role. You got started not with novels, but with nonfiction, as we talked about and doing public speaking. Is that still true of you that you kind of want to be that inspiring, motivational author and speaker, or has that changed over the years as you've built your career as a writer?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I kind of hope I have that little place. It, for some people, certainly I get that feedback that I do help people with my nonfiction. So this is why I love to write nonfiction and fiction. You know, fiction is very much an entertainment focus. You can escape for a bit and that ha- that definitely has its th- therapeutic side. But the nonfiction, I mean, the successful author mindset, which is one of my nonfiction books, I wrote that because I continue, as many people, I suffer comparisonitis and self-doubt and, you know, wanting to give up and thinking I'll never have another idea and all of these things that every single writer goes through. So I definitely will continue to write nonfiction. And I do also speak, but as an introvert, I have discovered over the years that being with a lot of people regularly <laughs> is too tiring and prevents me from writing. So what I've now decided, and it's working super well, so this year as we speak, 2019, I said would be a year of no speaking. And then 2020, I'm going to do speaking again. And then 2021, I will do no speaking. So I'm just going to do year on, year off. And in that way, that's going to enable me to achieve my creative goals, but also Also, to help people because sometimes seeing people in person and hearing a talk you can really help people in that way and also I get to see all my author friends at various events so yeah I'm definitely trying to continue to do both and this is another sort of know yourself aspect I thought that perhaps I would just double down on fiction and only write fiction. But that's just not me. You know, I love writing my novels, but I also love helping people. I love podcasting. I've been doing it over a decade now. So I'll continue to do both and happily, happily do both things.
0: I love it. This episode is brought to you by The Write Practice Pro. The Right Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing Get feedback on it and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award-winning books, short stories, or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award-winning writer, you should too. The Write Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book, novel, short story, or poem, or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing. If you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in and the right practice pro is the best place to get it you can sign up for the right practice pro at therightpractice.com/join so your main character morgan sierra in the arcane series is kind of a badass In the novel that we read earlier, she's kind of hurt. She's recovering from burns that she had in a previous mission. And even then, she managed to take out several of the bad guys. What is your connection with this character? Do you kind of channel yourself into her?
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, Morgan is ex-Israeli military, and she does Krav Maga. Although I have to say, I went to a Krav Maga class hoping that I could, you know, maybe if I became a Krav Maga expert, it's like a, a martial arts that they use in the military. And uh, I went to one class and basically just came home crying and like, <laughs> no, that that hurt way too much. So I I don't do that. But in her sort of work, so Morgan, is, when the series opens, she's working at Oxford University, obviously where I. was and I specialized in psychology of religion and that's what she specializes in and she essentially works with the arcane agency investigating supernatural mysteries around the world and one thing she doesn't really know I think is what she believes and so that definitely is me as well you know I've been in places where I've very much felt the presence of something else and then some days i you know i i love ai i love medical research i love all these other things that are not spiritual at all so sitting on the edge of what is spiritual supernatural scientific just stuff we don't know yet she brings that aspect to the book so i almost get to investigate my own thoughts and feelings through her so in that quote for example you know in some places of faith she felt warmth and welcome that is me a lot of the time Morgan is me but of course she also kills people (laughs) and I don't do that so yeah anyway you know, yeah, so that's where the sort of Lara Croft style character comes in, but certainly, you know, she has a house in Jericho in Oxford, which, you know, I, I have great emotional connection to that area. Her cat, Shmi, was my cat, and we had to leave him behind in Australia, so I wanted to write him into a book. <laughs> So, you know, there are lots of things where or oh, um also her mentor at Oxford, I did have a mentor who was a monk at Oxford at Blackfriars College, which again is in the book. so it's interesting because so much of the novels have been part of my life, but obviously, you know a lot of them haven't. It's just interesting where truth turns into fiction, but yeah, I mean Morgan is is definitely at least fifty percent me. <laughs>
0: I love it. So I'd like you to read one more section of your novel, Valley of Dry Bones. This is where one of the villains of the novel is checking on the status of his daughter, who is very ill. Can you read that section?
2: But Luis would not let Elena go so easily. He worked with every specialist he could find in the world until they all said there was nothing left to do, that he should prepare for the end. So Luis brought her to the lab, his determination renewed. He would find the hand of Ezekiel, and it would bring life to the bones that crippled his beloved. Elena looked up at him, deep purple shadows under her eyes. She spoke in a halting whisper. It hurts, Papa. I'm so tired. Can't I just rest? Luis knew what she meant. They had talked about her end-of-life choices. And when she said enough was enough, he would respect her decision to sleep without pain. He would help her transition and make sure she didn't feel a thing except peace and love at the end. But he couldn't let her go just yet.
0: So you've said that you believe in the right to die in euthanasia. Were you thinking of that when you were working on this story?
2: I mean, I think about that a lot <laughs> and it's come up in a number of my books. I have tackled that topic in my, certainly in my London psychic books. I talk about this as well in a book called Delirium about suicide, for example, which is a completely different thing. In this uh, occasion, Elena has a condition. I have the name here so I can read it out. It's fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, which is basically damaged soft tissue, so muscles and other things turn into bone. And it's a real condition. And they actually have a skeleton in Philadelphia, in the anatomical museum there, which I've I've seen. And it's it's quite horrific. I mean, it's basically your body is turning to bone, and it is a, a genetic disease. And this idea of Valley of Dry Bones, I got the idea of looking for Obviously, when we write these books, we have the top level, which is an action-adventure thriller where we search for some relics. (laughs) And then we have another level, which has a lot of symbolism. And this, you know, dry bones coming back to life is essentially what Luis is looking for, for, for his daughter, and he'll do anything. So, yeah, I do think that the decision for someone in this End of life situation is very very difficult, and I certainly uh, here in the UK I campaign for a organisation called Dignity in Dying, which is campaigning, you know, so that if you as an adult are in this situation, you could go to sleep at your home without pain. And at the moment, that's not allowed here. I know in some states in America this is legal, a number of states, I believe, but not here. So yeah I think things are changing, but again this this particular situation difficult because this is a child, and obviously children are a different case, so they can't necessarily make a decision. So I tried to make Luis have a really good reason for what he was doing. And in the book, obviously, he, he does all kinds of terrible things in order to try and get this cure for her, including experimenting on other people <laughs> in order to see if they could do that. But he's driven by a love for his child. But yeah, I think the discussion of end of life and the choice to die is a huge topic <laughs> and obviously crosses over religious lines as well and obviously I haven't one opinion for me but you know this is something we all have to face at some point and I write a lot about death and darkness and maybe that's to well obviously it is to tackle thinking about those things in my own life and for my own family and i um, certainly the letters I write to my MP about this type of thing are because my nanny died of lung cancer and she, towards the end, she she did not want to live anymore, but she had to carry on and just die in a way that we wouldn't let an animal die. So yeah, I think this is a hugely emotional and very complicated topic, <laughs> but important that in our fiction we can tackle things like this. Hmm.
0: So, as you said, this is a fun novel. It has entertainment value. Yeah, you you really picked some
2: fun parts there, Joe.
0: <laughs> I loved it. I love talking about this stuff. And and it does raise these deeper questions about life and death and how sometimes by avoiding death it can actually make life worse. Can you talk more about Luis and his huge desire to keep his daughter alive and how that kind of leads him astray and how sometimes in our attachment to life, we can actually make life worse and our avoidance of death, I guess.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea of the book is that essentially his distant ancestor had been to West Africa when the Spanish had gone down, obviously, in the slave trade and had stolen this powder from a village in West Africa. And of course that comes back up in the zombie tradition of Haiti and West African religions. But then essentially that had been stolen by the inquisition and they'd hidden it within finger relic, finger bone relics. And this had kind of gone down the ages, his ancestors versus the Catholic church. But then his family are hunting for the relics that can essentially bring the dead to life. And the opening scene of the book is uh, a village is, is massacred in West Africa in a slave raid, but the shaman brings them back to life with this powder. So he takes that. And so if, you know, through all the, the years, his family hadn't been able to do it. And then Luis finally gets a chance. He's in New Orleans. And he finds some of it and uh, the the hunt is for the relics that will complete the powder basically. And Morgan and the team have to uh, race him to get there in time. So, I mean, I I think for him, there's nothing he won't do. And he almost, you know, won't give up until, well, I can't, no spoilers. (laughs) But this, you know, what will we do to keep someone we love alive? That's a question perhaps we all have to face at some point. As we talked this week, it was very interesting. I mean, I this week I was telling you I, I've had a bit of a, an injury. And for a couple of days I was in excruciating pain that medication wasn't making much of a dent in. And when you are in a lot of pain... And you can't do anything except kind of lie there and wish time would pass so that you might be out of pain again. (laughs) I think if that is your life day in, day out, that's when you start to question whether or not it's worth it. And certainly the reason I campaign about this is because I want the choice. Because I have the choice as a, a, a living person to do so much, why can't I have the choice to die without pain when I choose to. So yeah, I think that we, when is it not worth carrying on? Well, you have to decide that for yourself. And it's certainly a situational thing. But certainly, you know, if you're in terminal, a terminal illness with terminal pain, like Elena in this situation, then, you know, I know what I would want. Yeah.
0: So who is your favorite character? from a book or film of all time?
2: Oh, you know, it's a real tough one. And I I, I knew you were gonna ask this, but I really like kind of Lone Ranger characters, not Lone Ranger Western (laughs) style, but individuals who are pretty, you know, kick ass. So I do like Lara Croft in Tomb Raider, but she doesn't have much depth. (laughs) let's be honest. <laughs> but I do like that kind of let's go accomplish things and do stuff and uh, have adventures. And in that way, I also do love James Bond films. I'm very action movie. I just love action movies. <laughs> I think I might be deeper meaningful, but actually I love action movies. One of my favourite films of all time is Con Air with Nicolas Cage. And of course, in that film, he plays you know a character who wants to get home to his family and will do anything to get home to his family. And that is A theme that comes up in a lot of my books. I will do anything to help my family, and that's something I definitely feel myself. But for this occasion, I I really do like Jack Reacher. So Lee Charles, Jack Reacher character, and I've got a quote that I have in my journal. I think is brilliant from Never Go Back. So I'll just read that. Ninety nine of us grow up to love the campfire, and one grows up to hate it. Ninety nine of us grow up to fear the howling wolf. And one grows up to envy it. And I'm that guy or that girl. (laughs) So, and this is how. I have like
0: chills. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, it's a great quote. And actually, you know, Jack Reacher says this in Never Go Back. And I like, you know, I've met Lee Child a number of times, and I like to think that's part of him. You know, he is quite a lone guy. You know, you'll often see him. He's very tall, you know, and he is tall like Reacher. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't beat people up as far as I know. But, you know, he's very a singular guy. And I feel when we put these little things, I feel like I have a lot in common with that feeling that I want to be out there doing other things <laughs> away from, saying what normal people want. But I want more than just a normal life. So I recently started, this year I started a new podcast called Books and Travel and I share this doing solo episodes which are kind of, they're almost the backstory to my novels but it's also about a lot of things that I haven't shared so far in my journey. And this is under the Why I Travel podcast. I use that quote to then go into the reasons why I travel and, you know, the reinvention side. So that if people are interested, that's books and travel podcast. But yeah, so, so you like that quote as well.
0: Uh, It's awesome.
2: (laughs) It is. And Jack Reacher, of course. The books are a a guaranteed experience, you know, Jack Reacher arrives, there's some injustice, he solves the injustice, kills some people, and then he rides out of town with a toothbrush. And (laughs) so I pretty much, I I like that idea that's kind of minimalist, but also sense of justice and taking action to correct the wrong in the world, which many of us would love to do, but we have to do it in our fiction.
0: Yeah. Well, Valley of Dry Bones by author J.F. Penn is available in ebook, audiobook, and print versions on Amazon and other online stores. Thank you so much for being with us, Joanna.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. This has been great.
0: All right, let's get into our character study segment of the show. This is where we ask what we can learn from Joanna's story and apply to our own lives as we try to live a better story. All right, Alice, what was your takeaway?
1: Oh man, I had so many, but here was the big one. I mean, her interview was amazing. I loved that whole thing, but here's the big thing that I'm taking away from it. I loved how she talked about teaching what you need to learn. She said, I felt if I wrote a book about it, I would learn what I needed to learn. So she started writing these nonfiction books about these life transitions she was going through and these things that she was thinking about and wrestling with and trying to navigate herself. She started writing this nonfiction as a way for her to learn things, which I think is really powerful because I look at her in the book publishing world, in the self-publishing world. And I think of her as someone who's really successful, who's made it, who knows her stuff. And so learning from her seems like a no-brainer. Of course, we would go to Joanna Penn to learn all these things about self-publishing. But she talks about starting to write that nonfiction before she knew what she was doing, when she was in the middle of the transition processes, when she was writing about how to go through this career transition. That is really empowering for me to think about how... I can engage with the things that I'm learning now in a way that will help me learn them more effectively because she talks about how you learn by teaching others. So how can I engage the things that I'm challenging myself with or challenged by, by approaching them in a way that I frame them in a way to help others as opposed to a way to help myself. Whether that gets shared or not, I'm not talking about being a, becoming a college professor in an arena you know th- nothing about. That's not the kind of teaching we're talking about here. And I don't know whether that book about career transitions, I don't know what her publication journey was on that one. I don't know whether she necessarily published 100% of the nonfiction that she wrote about the things that she was learning. But I think even if you never publish that, if it just sits in a file on your computer and it forces you to think about What does it look like to teach this to someone else? I think that's super helpful. The fact that she doesn't wait to learn things before creating, but she creates in order to learn things was really powerful Mm, for me.
0: That's good. When I was starting the right practice, that's what I was focusing on. I wanted to become a better creative writer. I wanted to write novels and memoirs and other books. And I had already done that a little bit, but I wanted to learn how to do it better. And by teaching, I learned so much. It was through that process of internalizing what I was learning so that I could share it with other people that taught me so much about the process. And since then, you know, I've written novels and memoirs and nonfiction books. So it definitely worked for me and it worked for Joanna. So it's a great strategy to learn how to be great at something by teaching other people.
1: Yeah, I have these ideas I've been thinking about for a while. And at some point this year, I started thinking, what if I started writing these down with the intention of helping people through them? And then I thought, who am I to help someone with these things that I'm currently wrestling with? And it was really helpful to listen to her and think, no, actually, that could be helpful for other people. And especially it could be helpful for me. Yeah. What was your takeaway?
0: So my takeaway was just how she kind of framed her Dream. Like her dream was to read, write, and travel. But she didn't just go quit her job and get a plane ticket somewhere and start writing books. She kind of built a bridge to that dream and she did it slowly. She started by teaching, by writing this book, by blogging, by starting a podcast. She started a podcast in 2009, wow. which is insane. I don't know anyone else who, has started, <laughs> who started a podcast in 2009.
1: It's a decade of podcasting.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And that was such a big part of her success, you know, teaching and really that process of building a bridge. I think a lot of us have dreams. I have had a dream. I still have a dream. I'm kind of living my dream right now, but it takes a lot longer to accomplish that dream than you think, than you really want. And her patience and kind of slow kind of way to get to that point is really impressive.
1: Yeah, I appreciated how she had some pretty realistic expectations when she set out on it that she was not going to quit her corporate job and immediately after publishing one book make an equivalent income to that corporate job. She knew that it was going to be something that took some time to build and she made sure that she had structures in place to make that transition to take calculated risks in that transition. And she had reasonable expectations for the timeline of how long it was going to take to build so that she could celebrate successes along the way. And now she's in a really amazing place.
0: Yeah, agreed. So that's our character test challenge. I want you to think of three things that kind of incorporate, encapsulate your dream life. For Joanna, it was to read, write, and travel. What does it look like for you? If you were living your dream life, what three things would you want to be in that dream? So spend some time thinking of those three things. And if you want, you can email those three things to us. We'd love to hear from you and we'll share your dream with our audience. You can email us at charactertestshow at gmail.com. And that's it. That's our show. Thanks to Pictures of the Floating World for our theme music. Don't forget to go to charactertestshow.com slash episode 12 for your free prize. And we have a new review. Alice, who's it from?
1: From Imbo Baggins.
0: So what did it say?
1: It says, I genuinely love the premise of this show. The format appeals to me in that it starts objectively looking at a character we all have access to, then a cool interview, and my favorite part, the application to our own lives. I love it. Highly recommend. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. So please leave a review for our podcast. You can do that by going to your podcast player, find whatever button you need to leave a review, then write your review. It can be as short as one sentence and it'll take you 30 seconds to leave a review, but it'll be a huge help. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks everyone. Bye.